Welcome to the Energy Live News podcast. In this episode, listen to Energy Minister Claire Perry's speech at Energy Live Expo 2018, where she discussed the UK energy sector's biggest issues. And it is my pleasure to welcome, to give you a little outline of where she sees the state of energy right now, our Energy Minister, Claire Perry. Good morning all. Um, I was told this was a TED-style talk, which is enough to put a, the fear of God into any minister, because we're you so, so a minister who stands up and does the thing reading out on the iPad on the wrist has yet to be invented. Uh, so I'm going to start, but I'm going to try and do something similar, starting with what I've got, which is a piece of paper. And I think this is quite a good analogy, actually, for how we think about the energy market and energy infrastructure and energy challenges, because I was very struck when I took on the clean growth portfolio and added energy to it that there was a huge amount of hypothetical thinking, lots of hypothetical pathways out there, looking at future projections, uh, looking at uh, how we drive down costs, looking at how we drive down carbon, but very few of them actually rooted in the world that we live in. And so my sort of rather deductive approach to policy making is sort of start with what you've got, work out where you want to go, and work out the best ways to get there. And I have a sort of triple test that I apply when I look at uh, ways to get there. The first is clearly carbon. How do we actually decarbonise in line with our targets and our budgets and indeed go beyond that? Secondly, cost. Because although there's a huge amount of myths out there, which I'm always happy to bust about what's happened to the cost of energy, clearly there are uh, consumers, there are uh, industry groups who are paying uh, more than others for what they're doing, for what they're consuming, and actually making sure that the market is competitive and works for everybody is a huge part of what we're trying to do. And lastly, there, oh, sorry, there's, there's four points. I can never fit the last one into a C uh, structure. The third C structure is, 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 uh, is sort of creativity and competitive advantage. I have been so struck in my role uh, as to how we rank as, a, as an energy market compared to other major countries. We are considered to be a crucible of innovation. We're considered through the auction structure that has been developed to have brought forward uh, a hugely competitive pool of, of very sustainable renewable energy and offshore wind. We're considered to be world leaders in thinking about how you balance your grid and how you deal with increasing demands of electrification. We're, our market, uh, market and regulatory structure, again, are considered to be uh, absolutely fantastic. And of course, you will all know we have a very reliable energy system that both delivers a margin of capacity, but also delivers a much more robust infrastructure than we had uh, many years ago. These are not facts that we often talk about enough, and I think that's actually a huge testament to many of the people in the room that we've achieved this. And I'm determined, as not just the UK, but the whole world pivots to this low-carbon low energy future that we talk about, that we are out there competing for contracts, exporting our knowledge and expertise, and helping to build IP and jobs right here in the UK as a result of that. And then the fourth thing that I can never fit into a C, and I'd love to get some suggestions, is security. <laughs> Maybe it's comfort, I don't know. Uh, one of the things that I think is absolutely crucial is that we, uh, we, we make sensible decisions in the UK's energy mix, not based on ideology, uh, based on what makes sense for consumers and what makes sense for our system. And um, I'm very happy to take questions about shale. It's, it's sort of disappointing, if you like, that the whole conversation about oil and gas has, has focused in on onshore exploration, but happy to discuss that. But one of the most striking uh, things I've had in my role uh, in the last year is going to the Conference of the Parties, 
where we talk and we sit and we, you know, we wrestle through with the Tanaloa dialogue, how are we going to get the 195 signatories to the Paris Agreement to a place where they'll actually raise their national ambition and raise our collective ambition to reach, uh, to reach at least two degrees. And this year it was held in Bonn. And Bonn is on the Rhine, and as we were all there negotiating hard, there were massive great barges of brown coal sailing past the site on the way to the German power station so they could burn coal because they made ideological decisions to not use gas, except they do, to not use nuclear, except they do, and to essentially rely on coal to keep the lights on. That is not a decision we are going to ever make in the UK. In fact, quite the opposite. We are able to phase out coal as a generating fuel by 2025 and create a movement, you'll have heard of the Powering Past Coal Alliance globally that we've set up with Canada, which now has only over 70 signatories to encourage other countries to take coal off their generation grid. We've been able to do that because we have a diverse energy supply and we don't make decisions based on who shouts loudest. We make decisions based on facts, on cost, on competitiveness and on security. Um, so it also then says on my paper that I should talk a little bit about, uh, about some of the challenges for us. So we're in a good place, but the things that are sort of keeping, keeping us awake, if you like, making us burn the midnight oil uh, or gas or uh, solar um, are a couple of things. First is heat. You know, we, are st we, are constantly, we, we constantly talk about this challenge of how we decarbonise heat. And again, I'm very struck that we often talk about that in a very theoretical world where we say, if only we had 100% heat electrification, that would be uh, great. Uh, except who's going to rip out the gas network? Who's actually going to go out and persuade those 80% of people that rely on a gas for heating and cooking that they should do something differently? And ultimately, who's going to pay for it? And the payment decision is very simple. It's either taxpayers, it's consumers, and obviously those are the same people, often, or same institutions, um, or its shareholders. So finding that right mix as to who's actually going to pay for a change, who's going to make the investments, and who's going to benefit from it, I think is a crucial part of energy policy. But there is amazing innovation coming forward in the heat space. The first thing we need to do is get uh, homes that are off the gas grid, like the 40,000 homes in my constituency, um, to just uh, have as a matter of principle, when there's a new build, it doesn't have a fossil form fuel of heating, and that's something we can, we can deliver. There's huge innovation going on. You'll be where uh, blending hydrogen into the grid, potentially using hydrogen for heat, uh, other opportunities. Again, amazing innovation being delivered. But that is a, that is a kind of key challenge that we, uh, that we do need to, uh, to focus on. The second area, and this hopefully resonates with this audience, is business energy efficiency. It must be really tough managing a small or medium-sized company and knowing that you need to do something about your energy bills, but actually your, your P&L is probably dominated almost entirely by your staff costs rather than your energy costs. And I know there are lots of organisations who would like to help you with that challenge and the whole energy as a service market is growing. But I think we need to do more collectively to work on business energy efficiency, both in the, the smaller service, uh, or not smaller, in the service sectors, but also in the big heavy emitting industries who have done some cases a remarkable job in decarbonising their industrial processes. And hopefully you saw in the budget that I've secured another 300 million of funding to help uh, with business energy efficiency improvements. And we have a thing called the Industrial Strategy Challenge Fund, which is now up to 1.1 billion pounds. And one of the key things we want to do in that is work on decarbonising industrial clusters, actually create the low-carbon industrial clusters of the future, which will have an energy component, but will also have an industrial component. 
Um, the last thing I wanted to mention was uh, what's the right scale to innovate? Because we, I mean, there are lots of plenty of clever people in this room who will give me a perfect national model of how it all looks at this percentage renewables and uh, this percentage gas, and, and it, that that is really interesting theoretically. Actually, how do we deliver this? Uh, in a way that joins up across the boundaries. Because, of course, it's an energy audience, but you will equally know in the world we're moving to, the bleed over between energy, between transport, between uh, heat capture and usage. Uh, there are just these incredible kind of breaking down of traditional infrastructure silos, if you like. And it is an unfortunate truth that, that those problems often get solved better at a smaller scale than at a national scale. So I'm really interested in seeing innovation coming forward from combined mayoral authorities, from groups of companies working together, from local authorities, from mayors, uh, actually really pulling together what this future could look like on the ground. Because I think the more we can see that, the more we can test that, the more we can gather data from that, the better able we are to de-risk and innovate going forward. Um, so sitting here on Halloween, I'm not scared at all. I'm, uh, I'm incredibly excited about the opportunity for us. I think we have collectively delivered a very uh, robust uh, energy system that is now up to 30% renewable content, over 50% low carbon content. You saw the stats saying that we had gone without coal for the first time since the Industrial Revolution. That will only continue to decline. The last time emissions were this low, Queen Victoria was on the throne. And people, and I think what was very interesting about the IPCC report, which of course I have used to ask for guidance on how we will now reach a or could reach a net zero emissions economy, we are the first developed nation to ask for that advice, by the way, um, is some of the language can be very scary. Maybe this is a Halloween theme. You know, when we talk to people saying, we've got 10 years to save the world, you know, I understand completely the sense of urgency and I applaud the science behind that. But there's kind of a, well, what the hell? How are we going to do that? This is all just too difficult. You know what, let's just, let's just go and have a party. It's all over. It's not over. Since, two, since 1990, we have cut our emissions in this country by 40%. That is the leading light, if you look at the Price Waterhouse Index, amongst the G20 nations. We have cut our emissions more for every unit of economic growth than any other developed nation. And we're accelerating that, and energy is a huge part of that. So I think showing that we have done this in a way that hasn't challenged our way of life, hasn't caused problems with the supply, hasn't caused us to make irrational decisions with energy mixes, is really reassuring for people because it shows that these decisions we need to take going forward are entirely reasonable and can be done. But final point is, can't do it alone. It has to be done in partnership. And what is amazing, actually, just seeing the list of sponsors up there, is how you know a conversation that would have been very fossil fuel dominated 10 years ago is now happening at so many levels with so much innovation. And I'm really excited about the opportunity to solve problems that we face and also the rest of the world faces together. Thank you. Oh, you can come here. I'll put you over here. <laughs> so you're not scared? I'm excited. Oh, you, oh, you want to sit down? Oh, fine, let's sit down. Why oh, not? Do you want me to stand up? No, Sorry. that's fine. You've stood enough for a minister. That's good. Um, I'm going to go to questions very quickly, but I've got two from uh, our audience. So this is from Chris Webb uh, from BOC. Uh, in the event of a no deal, which I hope you're not going to get, I'm sure, um, 
what will the government put in place to manage the resultant shortfalls on electricity? Should I, as my business, a BOC, big sort of gas uh, business, um, put in a diesel generator in the garage while I still can? Oh dear. <laughs> Definitely not. So uh, I'm pretty confident that we will have a deal. I think we, we are all very confident. Um, I think the, the, the two questions, the two sort of theoretical risks around no deal, yeah. and they are theoretical because... Uh, I, I understand that the, the, the risk of a market functioning illegally. So the big challenge is, particularly in the, North, in the Irish market, if we have a no deal, uh, we essentially then have a market that is, that is not uh, functioning in, its, in the way that it was designed. But it will still function. There yeah. is absolutely no... I mean, of course, we need to make contingency plans, and we yeah. have done, and we've taken uh, powers and measures to make sure we have planned for the worst... But I think, you know, who is going to switch the flow off between well, Northern and Southern Ireland? I think this is the one of the things that people mm -hmm. talk about, is like the interconnectors. Mm -hmm. That's such a big part of all mm -hmm. trading. I assume there's provision there for you guys mm -hmm. to look at that. Um, is there any reassurance you can give to the... Well, the interconnectors are private contracts. <laughs> these are not Gov G2G. These are, these are generally B2B and B2G contracts in the UK. And so uh, they will continue to function. There is, I suppose, a theoretical risk that those contracts could be negotiated. But again, the economic, you know, that they work on the basis of price signals. Yeah, so they, of they, they flow because of pricing differentials. Or in case of Beast for the East, they sometimes flow where you don't <laughs> expect them to go, which is an important point for loading analysis. But, but I, so, so I'm not in any way downplaying this matter. No. I think energy security and stability Which is, is the biggest concern part. for the people in this room. Yeah. Um, but but I, I would like to reassure people that, uh, you know, I, I find it a very remote possibility we will have interruptions in supply or indeed price sharp, sharp pricing movements okay. in the very unlikely event of a no deal. Uh, here's a question from a student, Sussex student, Anna Watson. I don't know if she's here. Uh, energy ministers in the UK, this is a good one, you like this one, uh, are notoriously uh, known for not staying in the role long enough. Ah. Uh, dear Claire, what is your vision for a long-term uh, goal, uh, and will you still be minister and pushing for a GB Green rev revolution next year? Well, is Anna here? <laughs> I don't know if she's you here. Say hello to my stepson, who's also ah, a Sussex right. in <laughs> Fergus. Um, Anna's so, here. Excellent. Hello, Anna. Um, it's, so it's a very important question, and I think uh, so. Of course, I have the beautiful thing about government is you have literally no control over your job. It's an extraordinary thing if compared to the private sector. However, uh, a couple of things to give you reassurance. First is I think the putting of energy into the business department was a really smart move because so much of this is about working in kind of public-private cooperation. And if you look at the industrial strategy that we've put forward, uh, one of the four pillars of the industrial strategy is clean growth, both capturing it for the UK, but seizing the opportunity as a jobs and productivity generator uh, as we export that around the world. So, so I think that structural change uh, should, should give us all comfort. The second thing is that I... Uh, Prime Minister of May invited me to attend Cabinet. So I attend Cabinet in my Minister of State role, which is somewhat unusual. Yeah, um, and so we're able to have these conversations about uh, energy, but, but crucially, clean growth. Anyone who has read the clean growth strategy, and I know you all have, will know that it is a totally cross-government plan. So in order to deliver, we have to get carbon out of the transport system. Yeah. We have to do a ton of work around land use and agriculture. We have to innovate across industrial clusters. And, and De Bayes, the department, doesn't have all of those levers. So, so so it has to work cross-government. Cross I would love... I have the best portfolio in government. I absolutely love my job. And the opportunity to go, do Green GB Week and just have this moment where mm. we, we celebrated what we'd done and challenged ourselves to do more was great. 
but I hope the importance on energy and clean growth would uh, would long outlive my probably relatively short parliamentary well, career. Well, we hope not. <laughs> anyway, right, let's take some questions briefly. Uh, hands up and we'll get the microphone. So we've got a microphone on this side of the room, wherever the microphone is. Hurry, hurry, Jonathan. Quickly, quickly. Can I get you to stand up, say who you are, and your question, please? Thank you. Hello, I'm Nigel. And Ni keep them short. Yes, of course. I'm Nigel Orchard. Uh, Pilot Systems is my company. Claire, thank you so much for that. Um, I don't think I've heard such a passionate speech since your predecessor, Ed Davey, uh, was in power. So thank you so, so much for that and all those contracts he signed, energy contracts he signed, which sadly your government are unpicking slowly, but I, I'm sure you will, um, you, you, will, you, you will be changing that. Now, um, Claire, you mentioned um, shareholders, consumers and tax in terms of versus the people who shout too loudly. And I just wanted to take one small example from the industry where maybe we should review uh, the people who are shouting and, 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 and you know, look Can at that in a little short, bit more detail. Question, and it is this fiasco on smart meters. Okay. Okay. What are we going to do about it, Claire? Thank what are we going to do about by, it? By the okay. way, I don't in any way ever want to diminish uh, people who care enough to stand up and make strong points, whatever level of volume. I think it's incredibly important that we, we do, uh, you know, wisdom of crowds has a lot to do with I just want to come back to you a little bit. So, so Ed has been a, done a wonderful bunch of things, but as subsidies drop in renewables, I think it's absolutely right that we drop the level of support for things like feed-in tariffs, which I think was part of your question. Um, I don't think smart meters is a fiasco. In fact, far from it. I think it's the, one, it's, the, it's the most ambitious smart meter rollout pan globally. No other country has done this. Well, Italy did it, but all the meters are outside and they don't have dual fuel meters. Um, what we did was quite properly make a decision that the future of energy, uh, the, the, the kind of core value of energy is going to be around data and smart energy usage. And if we can crack that, not only can we unlock huge efficiencies in the system, we can deliver things like half-hourly settlements, we can actually reduce the demand on the system. Um, I think the programme is in much better shape than you might perceive from some of the public statements. I'm happy to de debate it offline. Um, we have uh, agreed uh, timetables for the important part, which I think is the SMETS 2 enrolment and rollout. It, I think it was right to do SMETS 1 because it meant the suppliers basically, basically conformed around a standard that could then be upgraded. Um, but I think we need to do a lot more to, to promote the benefits. I had a SMETS 2 meter installed this summer. I'm with a, a you, you were lucky to get one. I couldn't get one. Uh, uh, well, that, sometimes being energy minister is helpful. Um, <laughs> but uh, but, but the, the, the one thing I would say, which many people say, is that the issue about meters being coded to one supplier and then change yes. it. You're looking at all of well, that. So that is a problem of SMETS 1, yeah. uh, and it will go away with the... With the I, I hate to say, So basically, when the first cohort are enrolled in yeah. this... Uh, bespoke data company that we have set up and the industry is invested in. The issues around, for example, not having a mobile signal, very important yes. in my constituency, the issues around switching and it going dumb will go. And I want to make them going as seem, I mean, no, people shouldn't have to do anything to get that functionality. And that process is starting. So the, the, the system production is happening now and we yeah. will start that enrollment uh, early next year. Okay. So by 2020, 
the, the time proposal, and I have no reason to think it won't be delivered, is that everyone will have been offered a smart meter. There is no compulsion. I get lots of letters from old ladies saying, I'm going to go off grid rather than accept <laughs> your spying smart meter. I'm like, Good on them. okay, where do we start with the myth busting? However, there is no compulsion. I think people hopefully will, uh, will want them. And actually, I'm very interested in what some of the more innovative suppliers are doing around making a smart meter a centre of a much more innovative billing and um, supply tariff. Okay. Uh, another question. Uh, can we get this gentleman here at the front? If you can keep it short and sharp, please, sir. Yeah, two questions. Right. Andrew Ross from Global Garden. It's really good to hear your mention of mayoral act, um, authorities as being enabled in this arena. Um, there was no mention at all in the budget of green finance or of support for the Green Finance Institute. Would you support the enablement of municipal green bonds issued by local authorities to finance sustainable energy infrastructure in projects such as that's Oxford to Cambridge so, um, so two things. So we green have bonds. already pre-budget funded the Green Finance Institute, which um, and actually Green Finance I didn't talk about, but is a huge enabler of this whole transition and something that we're incredibly good at in the UK. Um, given that the local authority borrowing caps were lifted previously, I think that was a conference announcement, there is nothing to stop, as I understand it, a local authority putting together a, a, a green-facing form of financing and using it to fund improvements. However, you will know we have the excellent Salix scheme, which is essentially a very, very well-functioning uh, finance scheme for local authorities now who can go to the scheme and borrow, it's a sort of revolver, to do anything they would like. And the scheme is absolutely brilliant. And I would personally like to open it up much more broadly, particularly to the NHS. So they don't have to finance, the finance is already there, but I think there is such an appetite for, uh, for green finance, you know, green instruments, that there is a big market out there for those who choose to access it. Okay, uh, Jeremy, can we get the microphone down here quickly, Johnny? Run, 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 run. I went on for far too long with my speech. You did, I? your like speech was good though, I liked it. I think I've got to do the TED thing, and yeah, you've got the TED good. training required. Quick, quick, Jeremy. Thank you, Minister, excellent Hi, speech. Jeremy. Um, Jeremy Nicholson. Uh, it's not, we've not had enough controversial questions, so fracking. Hey. Um, hey. Just to bring it up, um, is it part of the solution or part of the problem? Some people fear it, I don't, but then I'm in favour of good environmental regulation, which we have here, but Francis Egan and others have argued it's a bit too tough. Where do you stand well, on that, and what so more can we do to make the case that fracking uh, and the use of methane as a source of hydrogen with carbon capture and storage could be a long-term solution. Thank you, Jeremy. So, look, I, I, so, so, um, it, so I've been, I guess, surprised and also rather impressed by uh, the level of protest that has built up. And, and, and I have a rather cynical... And sneaky meetings, apparently. No, no, that saying. meeting was... Uh, so that was, a, that was a round table attended by the unions, by NGOs, by the companies. I, I popped in for five minutes. It was, it was disclosed <laughs> in the House of Commons. I mean, you know... It, I don't do sneaky. Um, so, so, the, so I think a couple of things, and I, uh, you'll have heard me say this. So we have a choice about gas. I mean, one, so in the most uh, renewable intensive model I have ever seen of the energy system, it still requires some form of thermal generation. And the advice I have been given uh, by Deep Greens is that gas is, is the best fuel to use because it's relatively easy to decarbonise. So in every possible trajectory we have, uh, from the CCC, gas is still part of the mix. And I think we should actually be think about that because that's part of the reason we've been able to come off coal and we've been able to deal with renewable intermittency because we have had a backstop of good modern gas generation. 
Of course, it's declining at about 8% a year, and that's baked into. So, of course, we, we, uh, we'll move from a, 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 a... We are currently importing about 40% of our gas. It'll go to 70% in 2032. We buy a tiny volume from states that are not necessarily our friends, but they are big movers in the price-setting ability. And for business customers in general, the gas price spikes tend to hurt your energy bills much more than they do household consumers. I think our environmental regulations are absolutely the toughest in the world. In fact, the reason we are having this uh, question now about seismicity, so the, so the level that, that's, that they are stopping at is the equivalent to the vibration you would feel if you were standing 20 feet from a bus going by in London. This is micro-seismic events. And the reason they're detected is this is the most uh, seismic, seismically monitored site in the world. Now, some people may say... Uh, that's just too much, we should have no seismicity. There are over 400 events every year, natural or otherwise, that trigger seismic events of about 2.5 uh, m at the surface, which are the ones you feel. So, so I think the, the fact that we have these very tight regulations, uh, which are entirely appropriate as we go through this phase of testing what's there, remember we're in a kind of test phase, are entirely appropriate. And lastly, um, I just think about the job potential creation. Of course we have no idea where the industry will go, but I'm very struck that the GMB union and others absolutely support this industry for the opportunity it brings to actually generate some, some highly productive jobs, particularly in communities that have been left behind. So from an energy mix, an environmental point of view, and a job creation point of view, it absolutely ticks all the boxes. Um, and I think those facts are important facts to get out there. I'm happy to have the debate, but as I started by saying, we don't make energy policy based on ideology. And being driven off uh, domestic gas production by a lot of misinformation, I think will be a really, really bad call to make for the country. Okay. Do you have time for one more? Yes, I do. One more. So can, we have a lady? can we have a lady? Oh, can we have, can we have a lady? lady? All right. Please, so we've got a lady. Yes. Lady in the front. Well, a lady in the front. Right, right quick. There we go. Can we, let's, take the, let's take you together. One and two. And then oh, we'll try okay, and fine. Yeah. Is that we right? Get, Johnny, can we get microphones for yeah. that yeah, lady, lady there? The can you put your hand up? Thank you. Get the microphone there. So we'll come to this lady first. Can you stand up? Hi, I'm Joanna Barrigan from Imperial College. I'm a student. Um, I, a student? I'm a student. Yeah, this, is, this, this is considered work. <laughs> Good on them. Um, so you have mentioned that data will become more and more important in the future. Uh, so data is a digital representation of the physical quantity or quality of a system, be it electricity consumption or a system state or use. Um, technologies such as blockchain come to mind in order to validate that this data is immutable and time-stamped in a record. And so do you see any potential in these sort of technologies that allow also for energy trading between different companies and different Okay, well, that question, yes. and then the next you. one, then we'll answer them together. So technology, and keep the question Thank short, Thank you, it's please. Emily Goldstone from The Times. Thanks for coming to me for a question, Claire. Um, just to follow up on Jeremy's question about fracking, um, Francis at Quadrilla is saying very specifically this morning that they will not even be able to complete the tests that they want to do unless you raise the limit for the earthquake uh, kind of red light boundary and that almost certainly the industry won't be viable unless you increase the, uh, the limit in the longer term. Okay. So will you look at reviewing that within the next few weeks so they can complete their tests? Okay, cool. Let's um, do this. So I think the, the data one. question is hugely important. And we're already, there are already some pilots that Bayes is funding using blockchain for peer-to-peer -peer energy trading, which is really interesting. Again, and I know that puts the fear of God into the system balances, the idea that this is all happening behind the monitors. Um, but I've set up, uh, actually to help with this, a, a sort of data energy task force headed by the excellent Laura Sandys. Because I think the more we can learn, the more we can work out where 
we can co-invest uh, and the more we can see what business models come. But I mean, energy is a service, isn't it? Like so many other things where data has been utterly transformational. And I think you're at a, an institution that is really at the forefront of a lot of this data analysis. So that's great. Um, I'm not going to, I mean, look, we will review this uh, as I think Sir Ed Davey in his written ministerial statement originally said, we've set the guidelines like this. Uh, we clearly need to look at this when we get into an operational state. Um, but it would be a very foolish politician who would do things that would be considered to be relaxing regulatory standards when we are trying to reassure people about safety. So this is clearly an important conversation to have. Um, but I would love to encourage you and your colleagues when you're reporting this stuff to report the facts. I find headlines like shale rips through safety standards. That wasn't one of yours. That was a colleague elsewhere. It's just a bit crazy, and it's kind of scaring. You know, what, why would we be doing this? It, you know, I mean, I understand, and I'm actually rather very impressed with some of the NGO campaigning. I think it's probably quite a good way of fundraising to have a campaign like this that you can keep going at. Um, but honestly speaking, we, we have an opportunity here that we need to soberly test the science. You will see the incredibly eminent scientists who, who were behind the original report. And, and my final point on this is I'm frequently asked to go out and defend the science of climate change. When I say that the scientists have said to us that this industry is sustainable and safe and important, somehow that's just a load of rubbish and I'm in hock to the fossil fuel industry. So I just don't think you can have it both ways. If we trust the facts, we trust the facts, and we don't make energy policy set on ideology. Excellent. You won't get that headline in Energy Live News. Anyway, uh, ladies and gents, please thank our minister for her time. Thank you very much.